Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. My name is Despair. I was once the god of hellfire, but now I'm the the god of a lightly grazed knee. <laughs> okay, I've got nothing. <laughs> Hello, Kevin, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Slightly puzzled, but, you know. Well, I thought, you know, I couldn't go with the god of hellfire again, so I decided to downgrade it, but... A slightly grazed knee from Hellfire. Yeah, you know. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. We conclude the second in our Album Clash goes to the movie season this week. Kev, what album are you taking us through? So I will be taking us through 1988's Rattle and Hum by U2. Mm, and we will find out whether that is victorious over the album Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads, which I took us through last week. Before that, however, it's my pick for our Video Killed the Radio Star feature. And, well, I'm just going to come out and say it. I want to talk about the video to Freedom 90 by George Michael. So, yeah, a very famous video from the time, uh, one that I'd forgotten about, really. If you had MTV in the 90s, you saw this video a lot. Oh, yeah. So, the song itself was from the album Listen Without Prejudice in 1990. It was released as a single in October of that year. It reached number eight in the US, number one in Canada, but only number 28 in the UK. Of course. (laughs) So, uh, do you know who directed it, Kev? Was it Bay? It wasn't Bay, no. (laughs) Uh, We'll come back to him momentarily. No, it was directed by David Fincher. Yes, that one. Oh, right, okay. Uh, He had quite the 1990, because that same year, he also directed the video to Madonna's Vogue. I mean, another very iconic video from that. Absolutely. And he also started work on Alien 3, which the least said about the better. Which was terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Right, okay. The video. George Michael, if you've seen it, you know he doesn't appear in the video. Instead, who disappear in the video are, well, five quite well-known supermodels from the era. Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista, Tatiana Patitz, Christy Turlington and Cindy Crawford. There are also four male models, John Pearson, Scott Benoit, Peter Formby, and Toto Sagaya. So all of the models in the video lip sync along with the lyrics. George Michael got the idea for having models in the video when he saw the January 1990 cover of Vogue, which has the now iconic image of the five, Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista, Tatiana Petitz, Christa Turnington, and Cindy Crawford, all on the cover. So... He asked them all to appear in the video. Although, according to Linda Evangelista, uh, in an interview with Vanity Fair in 2015, they did need a little bit of persuading. Uh, she said he thought it would make us into a big deal, that it would be good for us. I was like, please, we're here. We've already arrived. <laughs> <laughs> the video itself was shot over a few days at Merton Studios in London. Each model was filmed on a separate day, apart from Christy Turlington and Linda Evangelista, because they have a scene together in the mm-hmm. video where they become blood sisters. One of the more famous scenes in it is Cindy Crawford's bath scene. Uh, apparently the bath was empty, the steam was all from a smoke machine. 
to give her the impression that she was like hot in a steamy bath her makeup was covered in glycerine and she had to lie on an upturned apple crate so that enough of her head would be visible to the camera so all sounds quite uncomfortable (laughs) exactly (laughs) right so george michael firstly on his decision not to appear in videos for a while he said at some point in your career the situation between yourself and the camera reverses for a certain number of years you caught it and you need it but ultimately it needs you more and it's a bit like a relationship the minute that happens it turns you off and it does feel like it is taking something from you In a later interview in 2004 with the Gay Pride magazine Attitude, he said, by the end of the Faith Tour, I was so miserable because I absolutely knew that I was gay. I didn't suddenly want to come out. I wanted to do it with some kind of dignity. So I thought, okay, you have to start deconstructing this whole image. Yeah, the the imagery of, you know... From the Faith video, obviously, he ha- he's wearing the leather jacket, he's playing the guitar, he's leaning up against a jukebox, and all of those items are destroyed in the video. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, firstly, I love this song. So I, I know both of your sisters are big George Michael fans, so you may not be quite as fond of him, but I think this is a fucking great song. So what what I'll say about it is that, unfortunately, this song particularly has been infected by the moribund Robbie Williams cover. Yes. And I was really glad to hear it again because I'd forgotten how good this song actually actually is and the his his vocal performance and everything in it is is it's absolutely amazing. So I think it's a, it's a cracking video. Really iconic, great yeah. visuals. Yes, and it's it's a really good song as well. Yeah, um, and highlights how good actually George Michael really was. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I I couldn't agree more. So to the video. So yeah, you've got all that fantastic imagery, which even at the time you thought, okay, Christ, you know, you listen to the lyrics of the song. It's all about this is what I was, but it's not what I am. And you see that imagery of like, you know, Fincher going, no, no, we're going to fucking set fire to your jacket. We're going to blow up the jukebox. It's it's brilliant. But yeah, aside from that, you have five of the most beautiful women in the world at the time appearing in your video, lip syncing with your song. And you mentioned Bay, And this is actually one of the reasons I wanted to pick this video. So yeah, compare it to another video directed by someone who would go on to make Hollywood blockbusters in 1990, a video we've previously covered. This is not leering. Okay, there's an eroticism to this video. It is a very, very sexy video, okay? But to me, it's not leering. It's not sordid. To me, the way it's lit, there's no lingering cleavage shots that you've got, such that you've got in the Bay video. Much of it's in shadow. It's their faces that are the focus. It's their movements that are the focus of what's going on, not their bodies. But Fincher still manages to create a real allure, a real sensuality to the whole thing without going over the top. I think it's brilliant. Well, yeah, I mean, so firstly, you've got to talk about the confidence to not be in your own video. Yes. That's a hell of a statement to do that. And I think that one of the key differences between this and the Bay video that we we discussed 
I mean, firstly, there are fewer males in it, but there are males in it who, yeah. you know, they are very attractive fellas. Mm. So there is some kind of equity there that at yeah. least there is, you know. But yeah, I, I don't think it is a a leering viewpoint that you you get that it's 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 different it's it is very much more a model shoot really mm-hmm. because the way the way that everything's done no absolutely right it is you're absolutely right it's it's like a fashion shoot the way it's shot but as with a lot of fashion shoots in this it doesn't feel as exploitative as the bay video does and as all of bay's films do yeah there's an allure to it there's an appeal to it there's a seductiveness to it and clearly, from what I just said about Cindy Crawford, the process of filming it was... It was not sexy. <laughs> exactly. It's great. Love it. I could talk about this video for a long, long time. I think it's brilliant. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great video. And um, to a overlook song, and maybe at some point that we will do uh, Listen Without Prejudice because it's an interesting album. It is an interesting album. I agree entirely. Okay, but that's for another day. Uh, for today, Kev... Please, could you start taking us through Rattle and Hum by U2? So, Rattle and Hum is a hybrid live studio album by U2. There is an accompanying film uh, produced by Phil Jonu. That's what that's what I'm going to go with. That's how I've always pronounced it, so fine. So, the album itself was released on the 10th of October. The film itself was released a couple of weeks later on the 27th of October, 1988. And essentially, like, in order to talk about this film and this album, this project, that you kind of have to go back to Live Under a Blood Red Sky, yeah. which was a live album and film that was released in um, 1984. Is that yeah, right? That's right. Which was a live performance by U2 um, at the Red Rocks Amphitheatre, which, which is brilliant and had heavy MTV, particularly in America, airplay, and really helped them break America. Yeah. And the film, the the recording of it was was incredibly successful. The album did really well, and it really established them. And I was quite tempted, to be honest, to do Live at Red Rocks, but I decided, obviously, to go with uh, Rattle and Hum because it was massively successful for them. Yeah, it was, and Fucking hell, there's a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, guys, I said this to Kev beforehand. I'll say it to you now. So you are forewarned. I always come on with a lot of quotes, right? So I own the book U2 by U2, which is the band charting their career in their own words. So yeah, I have an awful lot to talk about today. <laughs> so I will open with a quote from Paul McGuinness, U2's manager. I was very keen on the idea of going wide at a time like that, just think how big this thing could get. I'd always admired Colonel Parker and Brian Epstein for realising that music could capture the imagination of the whole world. Mm-hmm. So that was around their motivation to make Rattle and Hum. Yep. So you mentioned Under a Blood Red Sky. I think if you fast forward to 87, the time at which this film was shot, they exploded in 87. Joshua Tree was huge. Absolutely the Joshua Tree came out in March 87. It sold over 25 million copies. It made them superstars practically overnight. They were big after Unforgettable Fire. They were huge after Joshua Tree. They were on the front cover of Time magazine. Not just on the front cover of Time magazine, but the tagline was Rock's Hottest Ticket. They were box office. They had a number one album all over the world, two number one singles all over the world. 
And so they embarked on the Joshua Tree Tour, a world tour. Between April and December 1987, they played 109 shows over three legs. That's a couple. Exactly. It's going to fucking exhaust you. And as you said, it was during that tour that they came up with the idea to make a film. Yeah, so essentially, like, the band hoped that after the success of Under a Blood Red Sky, which had really helped them break America and had opened the door that the Joshua Tree had absolutely booted open, that they hoped that essentially lightning might strike twice, that they would be able to replicate that success. And because the Joshua Tree had been so big, they they could become the biggest band in the world, which also meant their place as the biggest band yeah. in the world because they had broken America. And when you break America, you essentially break the world, really. Yeah. No, absolutely right. So, um, yeah, here I'm going to start with the quotes now, just a little bit around, well, firstly, how they came to work with Phil Jonu. So, The Edge. The original idea was to make a low-budget film and release it in a limited number of theatres and make it a kind of fan-based event. We talked to a bunch of directors, Jonathan DeMay amongst them. We love Stop Making Sense. Phil Jono was the youngest director we talked to, with the least extensive CV, but he was a bit of a technical wonderkind who knew a lot about the band and his enthusiasm was inspiring. We didn't really put much of a plan or script together, we just thought we would start documenting the tour in 16mm black and white and see where we'd get to. Okay, Larry Mullen Jr. said, The original idea was we'd finance our own road movie and include live footage with the money we'd made from Joshua Tree Tour. It was all going well, and then all this other stuff started being added to the schedule because it might look good in the movie. It became a monster. I blame the madness of the Joshua Tree Tour. We lost touch with reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, the budget for the film was $5 million, and It blew that. Well... <laughs> So apparently they, they, they'd been financing it themselves and then realised, shit, we fucking broke here. So that's when they started having to get the, the major studios in. So Paul McGuinness, another quote from him, we spent five million of our own money making the movie and we sold it to Paramount for the same amount. That was a bit of a relief because we were quite seriously in the hole for a while. Again, Larry Mullen, when Paramount Pictures got involved, we were no longer making a road movie for ourselves. So this whole thing is spiralling, if you like. Yeah, if if you've seen the film, it's a weird amalgam of different things, really. It It's not really anything. There's elements... There's no narrative. No, there's elements of live performance. It's... There's elements of them discovering or paying homage to the great American artists that had sort of inspired them. I, I mean, the Graceland scene is fucking pure Spinal Tap. Let's... Oh, God, it is, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, it makes your skin crawl. It does. It really does. So I'm going to come back to this a bit later on when we're going through Legacy about the end product of the film. But I absolutely agree that it is so disjointed. There's no narrative. There's no continuous thread through. It's You can't even say it's a series of vignettes. It's a, as you said, it's a series of live performances, some footage of them in the studio, and then some stuff of them, I don't know. In America, yeah. essentially. U2's home movies from their trip to America. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. At least, at least they're filmed and they're not on, like on a slide carousel a la Patty and Selma's trip to um, <laughs> Customary Simpsons reference. 
I, the only thing that's worth saying, if you haven't seen the film, I mean, unfortunately, I, so I tried to watch the film again, uh, but it's not available anywhere. anywhere it's not can, available you know. on streaming services at all. No, I mean, um, it's not great. But if you haven't seen it, what is interesting is that everything is shot in black and white, apart from the footage at the stadium concert at Sun Devil Stadium in Arizona. That's all in colour. Everything else is, is in black and white. And I think that's a nice touch, mm-hmm. actually, because it gives you that sense of how things were really picking up for the band. Um, because the earlier performances are in arenas, and then they go to the they go stadium effectively. Um, but yeah, that's all I have for now on background. Okay, so how did you first come across the album? All right, so we've spoken about you two in some fairly unflattering terms on the pod before, but I've also spoken about how. I'm a fan of them. They're one of my favourite bands, okay? Despite Bono's... Well, despite Bono. <laughs> <laughs> and we will definitely talk about that. Oh, God, yes. So, they're another band, yet another band, that I got into through my older brother. And so, whilst Acting Baby was the album that really turned me on to U2, I had heard Rattle and Hum beforehand, or certainly some tracks from Rattle and Hum. And so when I got into them, I obviously went back and listened to more. So I have a very long history with this album. You're probably talking over 30 years since I first heard it. Okay, so for me, this is synonymous with The Joshua Tree and me dad. So The Joshua Tree, I will always, like, it will always have a memory in my head of me dad, like, so at the start of Where the Streets Have No Names uh, kicks in. My dad driving far too quickly because he's absolutely buzzing into it. And my mum shouting at him for driving far too quickly. And then usually when the tape would finish in, in the car of uh, the Joshua Tree, Rallon Hum would be stuck in. So, yeah, like it reminds, it reminds me of my dad. And I've known this since it came out because it was a hard rotation in my dad's car. Fair play. Okay, should we talk about the artwork? Okay, so the uh, cover art for the album is taken from an image in the film where Bono uses a handheld spotlight to highlight the edge on stage. However, the actual image on the front of the album is a recreation of that. Yeah. Photographed by Anton Corbin. Piers is lad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, like, did loads of stuff with um, Joy Division. He did well, and he and he did loads of stuff with you too. So you know, directed mm-hmm. videos like he did the one video, didn't he? He did, he did one of the three videos for one. Phil Jono did another one actually of those one of those videos for one. Is the Anton Corbin one the one with the Trabants? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to explain why we're laughing. Shut up and move on. <laughs> okay, a uh, good font. I no, I disagree. Shit font. It's just Arial Narrow. It's a shit font. It's a, it's like it works. the The color color balance with the photo works well. I don't th- I don't think it. I think it's as good as the um, Stop Making Sense cover, but it works. Oh, so for the first time ever on Artwork Clash, we have a disagreement. I think this is a better cover. So it it, it also was the promotional poster for the film. Mm-hmm. Yet again. And what's the font? It is just Arial Narrow, so I'm not having that. I like the way that the words are geometrically organised. I like that, you know. <laughs> oh my God, we're getting into geometric. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But I think I think it's a great image. It is. The fact that all you see is the two of them and Edge is bathed in that light and the fact that it's black and white too and everything else is just pitch dark. Gives it a quality. It does. And so despite the disappointing font game, I think this is the better of the two covers because whilst Stop Making Sense has a great font and the image from it is It's iconic. a giant suit. It's just a suit though, isn't it? It's a big suit though. <laughs> and a, but actually, this we didn't say this last week. We should have done. Because they cut off David Byrne's head, it's just a suit. You can't see his small head in it, so it's just a suit. So they missed the... Anyway... I'm, I'm all right with that because um, in my head it's Yokozuna's suit. <laughs> As we said last week, the title of both films and both albums comes from lyrics of songs on the album. Mm-hmm. The title of this album comes from a lyric in Bullet the Blue Sky. Yes, in- indeed it does. Um, and we will get on to that. Mm. So, should we crack into the album? Yeah, go on then. Okay, so we open with a cover, Helter Skelter. The song Charles Manson Stole from the Beatles. Well, yeah, so that's a reference that, if you don't know, you probably do. Charles Manson, he cited Helter Skelter and actually several other songs from the White Album as prophesizing an apocalyptic race war. I think it was Bungalow Bell. (laughs) No, it was Revolution Number (laughs) 9. So, yes, it's a Beatles song. And it is recorded for their eponymous 1968 album. Yes, Kev, the correct use of the word eponymous. (laughs) Which is also known as the White Album. This also opens the film. The performance was recorded in Denver, Colorado in November of 1987. It's fine. So, I'm going to go through my, my verbatim notes. Go on. It's not a particularly inspiring cover. It has nothing of the raucous, unhinged beauty of the original. The drummer doesn't have blisters on his fingers. (laughs) And considering that it's live, to not have that raucous, Uh anything-can-happen element to it is... It's quite a surprise, really, that it's, it's so restrained. I don't think it's a very good cover. No, so here's what I've said... Well, firstly, it certainly isn't the worst cover on this album. (laughs) (laughs) My verbatim notes. It really doesn't do anything new with the song, which, as we've said before, is a mistake. I love the original. It's absolutely huge. It's a song that's meant to be played loud with the bass turned up to 11. But this just sort of trundles along. Everyone performs it reasonably well, but there's absolutely nothing remarkable about it. There's no balls to it. No, it is not. It just sort of happens. It just, yeah, yeah, there you go. It's a really odd way to open what is supposed to be your live opus. It's competent. <laughs> and and I use that as a really damning with faint praise. Where it, like Adequate. Yeah, it's adequate. <laughs> yeah. You've not fucked it up. Well done. If you were at the Matthew Street Festival when that was still a thing, mm-hmm. and you were watching a Beatles covers band who were fucking ten a penny at the Matthew Street Festival, <laughs> and they played Helter Skelter, and it sounded like this, you'd go, "Yeah, that was a decent do that." Yeah, that was fine. It's not the same, but I'm okay with it. Exactly. But this is the biggest band in the world. I expect more. I expect better. Mm-hmm. And they don't deliver. No, not at all. And as I said, I, I think it's, I think opening a live album with a cover is a strange choice anyway. And to do it in such a... Anodyne. Yeah, it's such a 
beige cover version. Mm-hmm. It's odd. Okay. So we move on to the next song, which is uh, Van Diemen's Land. Mm. And I think the, there is a strange choice here. Now, maybe they think that Helter Skelter's a belter. <laughs> <laughs> nice! Because then following that up with Van Diemen's Land... Now, I will speak about what I actually think about the song, but I think album choice is that we've come in with a, a very beige cover, mm-hmm. and then we go in with a ballad-style... It's a folk song. Yeah, yeah, a ballad folk song Mm -hmm. that you're not really pulling me in straight away. Now, I actually really like this. I think Edge sings it fantastic. I actually, because I've I've listened to this album a million times, but I never bothered to to look at the linear notes or anything like that. So I didn't really, like, I just assumed it was a cover because it sounds so old. It sounds like a really old country-infused song. So it's interesting you say, I think it sounds like a really... Yeah, it's a great folk ballad. Actually, I think it's in the it's in that classic Irish folk style of... Mm-hmm. It's both unbearably sad and morose, but also uplifting and defiant somehow. Yeah, it's got a rebelliousness it to does, it. It does, absolutely. Now kings will rule and the poor will toil and tear their hand as they tear the soil. But a day will dawn in this dawning age when an honest man sees an honest wage. It is. It's rebellious. It's it's an ode to the working classes. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great. I think it's a great song. I love it. I've always loved this song. I just think it's in a weird place. Yeah, I I do understand what you're saying. I think if it was swapped around with the song that follows it, it might make a bit more sense. Without question. But I've always liked it. No, I think it's a great song. I think it's performed brilliantly. It's just weird where it is. So we then move on to probably the song that should be in its place. Yeah. Desire, a single from the from the album. Did all right. It did indeed. It gave them their first number one in the UK and it got to number three on the Billboard Hot 100. What you can say is it's become a staple of their set for mm-hmm. a fucking reason. It's got a great opening. It's got that huge sound. It's brilliantly performed. It's a really good package. It's a great. It's a great pop song. Uh, it's exactly what I said. A phenomenal pop song. Yeah, that, it's got a brilliant riff, which is simple. It's just three chords. The rhythm is fucking everything here. I mean, we talked about rhythm section a lot last week. Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. They are a fucking tight rhythm section. They they do not get enough credit. Absolutely I right, they don't. Well, I'm going to give them both credit quite a few times yeah. today, so, you know, we'll we'll rectify that. It's colossal, this tune. And, much as we have disparaged him frequently, Bono sounds fucking great. He does. Here. Look, the man can sing. Could sing. <laughs> and he is great on this. You know, he it has that balance between soulful singing and mm. rock singing. Which Bono, at his best, really does walk the line of. Definitely. And a great harmonica solo to finish it off as well. You've got to love Gob Iron. Yeah, yeah. Not quite Stevie Wonder levels, but, you know. Who is? <laughs> so the whole thing is over in under three minutes, but by the end of it, you have been taken on one hell of a ride. Mm-hmm. All right, so I warned you that I came loaded with quotes, and here I go. <laughs> So, firstly, The Edge on writing this. So he tells a nice little story. 
says, I'm working at home, the doorbell rings. I've got this great rhythm going, but I couldn't find a tape recorder. So I just kept playing. Went to the door, opened it, playing the riff. It was the postman. He gave me two letters. I took them, threw them on the hall table and said, thanks very much, mate, still playing the riff. Kicked the door closed, still playing. Walked upstairs, found the tape recorder and recorded the riff. That was the beginning of Desire. Bono says Desire is a little classic. I wanted to own up to the religiosity of rock and roll concerts and the fact you get paid for them. On one level, I'm criticising the lunatic fringe preachers stealing hearts at a travelling show, but I'm also starting to realise there's a real parallel between what I do and what they do. I wanted to talk about that because there's some parallels with some of the stuff we were talking about with David Byrne last week around the way his performances are based on that evangelical Pentecostal style, but also he's criticising them at the same time. And you can hear that in the lyrics. It, it, it is an attack on America and on an American culture, but at the same time, it's seduced by it. It's taken in by it. It's, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it's it's appalled and enticed and seduced by it. It's yeah, a absolutely. weird thing that American culture does to you. 100% agree with you. The last thing I'm just going to say, so there is a version of this in the film. It is nowhere near as good, so it's clearly unfinished. So the band moved to LA later on in 87, early in 88 to finish the album. And whatever they did over there with Desire, it fucking worked because what comes out is just magnificent. Yeah. I don't I have got nothing more to add to that. All right, let's move on then. Okay, let's move on to Hawkmoon 269. Mm. So Bono, unreliable narrator, <laughs> said Hawkmoon 269 was in part a tribute to writer Sam Shepard, who had released a book entitled Hawkmoon. He also said the band mixed the song 269 times. This was thought to be a joke for years. However, The Edge confirmed this in YouTube by U2. He does indeed. He says the 269 comes from the number of mixes. We spent three weeks on that track, to which Larry Mullen says, it shows you where we were at. We had lost the ability to make good decisions. (laughs) Also, The Edge uh, contradicts Bono being a prick by saying (laughs) that it's because they went through a place called Hawkmoon, which is in uh, South Dakota, and they just took the name from that. I believe the edge. <laughs> I believe the edge as well, um, especially with his tiny hat. <laughs> it's not bald. <laughs> I have always liked Hawkmoon 269. It's never really grabbed me. However, listening to it again, I can understand that this is a song that kind of came about whilst they were touring America that it has that kind of grand vista about it. It has the kind of looking over the Grand Canyon element to it. And I think Bono sounds great at the end of the song. Well, I think he sounds great throughout it because it shows off his incredible vocal range at this point. Because he starts off really deep. He's almost growling the first couple of verses. Mm -hmm. But yeah, by the end, he's absolutely belting it out at the top of his lungs, screaming out the last couple of verses so i think he is 
absolutely the centerpiece of this song. Oh yeah, he is, without question. But there's so much more that I really like about this. The rhythm is great. This is another one. So Larry Mullen in particular deserves praise for this, for that rhythm that he's just constantly there with. And great use of timpanis in the background as well. You've got to love a timpani. Got to love a timpani. But you've got, it's like a sort of wailing guitar riff throughout it, and particularly towards the end which is just highlighting a sort of sense of anguish. It's a desperate song. It's a dark song. Mm-hmm. It's about obsession. I, I really like this. I like the way it's put together. I think Bono sounds great. And I think some of the imagery in the lyrics is really, really evocative as well. I am a big fan of Hawk Moon, so I disagree with you. Okay, fair enough. So let's move on to All Along the Watchtower. Mm, let's. Mm. <laughs> so we've already had uh, one um, uninspiring cover. Tim, what do you think? It's shit. It isn't any good. Right, so in fairness, it doesn't sound like a pastiche of either the original Bob Dylan version or the Hendrix version. But what it does sound is exactly what it is, cobbled together. So in the film, you literally see them hurriedly practicing this in the trailer before going on stage. So it's played at a at a free concert they put on in San Francisco. I'll ask for my money back. <laughs> um, they opened the set with it as well. This was the first song they played. It's shite. It's rushed. It's bad. It, yeah, it's shite. It's got nothing to it. No. Like, there's no... You know, you've you've got a guitarist that's iconic. There's n- nothing guitar work nope. like that stands out. You've got a great rhythm section. There's nothing there. Nope. And to be honest, Bono, who who has a great voice, he sounds moribund. Like this, mm-hmm. this is the Rivita of cover mm-hmm. versions. Yeah, I find this more offensive than the cover version of Atomic by Sleeper that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I really do. And I don't like that cover version at all. It's just nothing. It insults both the Dylan and the Hendrix versions somehow. It's just dreadful. Yeah, it's not good. So in the film, uh, you see Bono during the performance of this song walking up to a fountain in Justin Herman Plaza and graffitiing the words rock and roll stop the traffic onto the fountain. Two things about that. It didn't actually take place during the performance of this song. It took place during the performance of Pride in the Name of Love, which was the last song in this set. And secondly, lots of people in San Francisco were quite cross about that, including the mayor, Diane Feinstein. Uh, she sent the bill for cleaning the graffiti off to you too. And I, for one, sincerely hope the other three made Bono pay for it out of his own allowance, because it had fuck all to do with them. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we'll definitely get on to that. <laughs> Dreadful. I wonder what my worst song's going to be. <laughs> Let's move on to I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. So, before we before we even begin talking about this, is there any song in history that has not benefited from having a gospel choir back it? <laughs> to quote... Is there any song that can't be made better by the addition of a gospel choir? (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, the answer to that question is no. No, because they have taken a good song and made it better. Oh my god! Oh, the so the uh, is it the voices of freedom? Yeah, yeah. That fuck me. That that's a gospel choir. It's great. Like they turn this into absolute fucking gold. Like it's a it's a good song, but my god. Yeah. Pfft, fucking hell. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Yeah. So. The original uh, was released in May 87. It got to number one on the Billboard Hot 100, number six in the UK. This version was recorded at Madison Square Garden in New York in September of 87. As you said, it's got the new Voices of Freedom choir. So, just in terms of how the Voices of Freedom came to appear on stage with you two, apparently Island Records had contacted New York-based choir director Dennis Bell to record a gospel version of the song which they intended to release as a single straight after the the original. Island boss Chris Blackwell got cold feet and, and, and vetoed that. But by that time, they had recorded a demo version, which through some route got passed to the band. When they heard it, they were amazed by what they heard. Of course they were, because wow. And so they approached the choir to perform on stage with them in New York. So in the film, we see the band rehearsing this in their Baptist church in Harlem. And this is obviously the the performance from the actual show. And yeah, like you said, they've taken a good song and made it transcendent. Yeah. I mean, the depth and beauty of the voice, I mean, it makes it so great. Yep. So the first time you hear the gospel choir come in, in the first chorus... Every time I hear it, it's hairs on the back of my neck. Yeah, it's proper goosebumps stuff. It is. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now, literally. But the soloists, Dorothy Terrell and George Pendergrass, they absolutely steal the show. (laughs) They nail it. Because Bono sounds great singing it, but then as soon as they come in, you're like, fucking shut up, Bono, let them sing. They're much better than yeah, you. I don't want you to sing anymore. I want them. They are better. Yeah, they are. It's it's glorious, this. I adore it. Uh, just to bring things down somewhat, a version of this song performed by Bono and Scarlett Johansson was released earlier this year for the soundtrack to the film Sing 2. Well, there you go. I didn't expect to hear that. I don't ever want to hear it. Nope, I'm all right with that. (laughs) Okay, so inherently linked with the previous song. um, So after the, what you see in the film, the practice at the church, Mm -hmm. you two go for a walkabout in Harlem and come across blues duo Satan and Adam. Mm. And their composition, Freedom for My People, is what you hear for 40 seconds within, within the album. And it's it's a nice interlude. It is. Like, you know, it works well. Well, I guess it, it works well as a segue into the song we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. I think it makes more sense in the film than it does on the album, I have to say. <laughs> the one thing I've written. I hope they paid them royalties. <laughs> 14 million copies sold. Of course they didn't. They don't even pay their fucking tax. <laughs> I've been waiting a while to, to throw that one in. <laughs> Do you reckon Satan and Adam are fucking preparing the lawsuit? Where's our fucking iPod money? <laughs> 
But, you know, 14 million copies sold. That fucking song's on your album, and it's in your film, for fuck's sake. Give us some dollar. I want some dollar for my band. No fucking feeling for my people. Stingy bastards. <laughs> well, as you said, pay your fucking taxes. Yeah. Making poverty history for members of you 2 Well, come on, Kev. You know, they, they are the most famous Swiss band of all time. <laughs> If you know what I'm talking about, then I don't need to explain it. If you don't, go and Google it. Okay, we move on to Silver and Gold. We do indeed. So it's got a fucking boss moody opening. Oh, God, yeah. Lovely bass work. Well, lovely bass work, a lovely little moody guitar riff from the edge. Bono's vocal, really deep again. Mm -hmm. And then get to the end of the first chorus and bang, it all comes in. It all kicks off. Yeah, yeah. It's another one to me that shows off his great vocal range. And again, we, we spoke about this with David Byrne last week. This is a live performance as well. So there's no, let's do a double take there. Let's take that bit out and re-record that verse. This is him on stage singing. And it's, so yeah, deep and subtle to start with. He's fucking belting it out by the end. And again, there's some great imagery in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Broken back to the ceiling, broken nose to the floor. I scream at the silence. It's crawling. It crawls under the door. So as much as we've talked about Bono's prowess as a singer, I think we need to compliment the band because it always says, mm-hmm. written and performed by you 2 they are great songwriters. There's some great imagery in those lyrics, especially when you know what the song is about, which, well, which Bono helpfully yeah. explains to us during the performance. Oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> is he bugging you? <laughs> Don't mean a bugger. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That whole section. So we've both seen you two, and we've both seen you two live together. Mm-hmm. That's that's what you get. Yep. Bono's moralizing. Do you remember when he told us all to text to make poverty history? Yeah, for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember that. Remember that thing as well, where it was like him and fucking Chris Martin and a load of other dicks going. Every time we click our fingers, someone dies. Stop fucking doing it, then you monsters. <laughs> Okay, now, like, have you what? Have you got children like um, with guns next to, next to their heads, and like every time you click your fingers, like fucking kill them? Exactly. What is monster? Yes, exactly. Like you said, that is what you get with Bono. And yeah, to bring us back to our obligatory Simpsons reference. Oh, here we go. What do you say? We slip out a Mose for a pint. Yeah, and it is very much. It does feel like that. Do you know what? I like Silver and Gold, and I like this version of Silver and Gold, but you do very much get that, let's slip off to Moe's. Well, yeah, and I also think the OK Edge, Play the Blues, it's cringeworthy. So, yeah, so someone that we have quoted many times, Stephen Thomas Erlewine, in his review on All Music, Bono's embarrassing stage patter, prefacing a leaden cover of Helter Skelter with this is the song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles and now we're stealing it back is bad enough, but it pales next to Bono's exhortation. Okay, Edge, play the blues on the worthy, decidedly unbluesy silver and gold. There you go. Well, once again, Stephen Thomas Irwin has put into writing exactly what I wanted to say. Much more succinctly than I ever could, so well done. Mm -hmm. Yet again. I mean... What I have to say is, you know, you go back to 87, it's actually quite important and quite good and quite noble that Bono's calling out and shining a light on what's going on in apartheid South Africa. But you don't need to take two minutes to say it. No. 
<laughs> that, that sounds really dismissive. Look, it doesn't matter because, as we know, that it was dealt with in Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> so what it's worth saying is, as he says again in that in that speech, so the song was originally recorded for the Artists United Against Apartheid compilation album, which was put together by Silvio Dante by, from The Sopranos. No, no, like, Artists Against Apartheid is how he says it. He does, actually, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was Silvio that put it together. <laughs> uh, it was also a B-side to Where the Streets Have No Name. I think it's a really good decision, despite that. Despite Bono. Like, you yeah, kind of exactly. have to just accept that's Bono. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a really good song, and I think it's too good a song to be reduced to being a B-side. Mm-hmm. So to bring it to a wider audience, I think it's a good choice. Yeah, okay. Let us move on to Pride, parentheses, open, in the name of love, parentheses, closed. One that people might be familiar with. Yeah, you might have heard this one. So for me, because as I as I explained earlier, that my first sort of introduction to the U two was my dad's tape deck in his um, Vauxhall Chevette. <laughs> wow! Yeah, vinyl uh, seats in the back. Fucking oh, hell! I bet that was nice on a hot day. Oh yeah! Do not wear shorts. <laughs> so this is the first version of Pride that I heard. Same, and I've always loved it. It's fucking epic. It is. It's for me. It's as a result of that. It's kind of in my mind the definitive version of Pride in the Name of Love. Mm-hmm. It's got so much raw energy that just bursts through the performance. Everyone is on top form here. Yeah, and you can hear exactly how Bono is able to hold the crowd in the palm of his hand. You know, during the breakdown where he's getting them to do the call and response. Oh, oh, oh. It's a, it's a great call and response that he does. It is. It's fucking brilliant. It's So if you're not going to do something different with your live versions, what you want to do is you want to play it with the energy to get the crowd absolutely bouncing. And yeah, 100%. It's a great, great version. So apparently, so the original, as people probably know, it was on The Unforgettable Fire, released in 84. Apparently, Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders sing backing vocals on the original. Well, there you go. Hmm. So everyone knows it's about Martin Luther King. Bono himself does not look back very fondly on the lyrics to this song. Uh, in YouTube by YouTube, he says, I looked at how glorious that song was and I thought, what the fuck is that all about? It's just a load of vowel sounds ganging up on a great man. It is emotionally very articulate, if he didn't speak English. So, you know, he is capable of some level of self-awareness. Although, if you have that much of a problem with it, why is it a staple of your live set? (laughs) A very fair point. (laughs) I think it's a brilliant part of their live set, but I don't have a problem with the song. No, I, I love it, and yeah. Just like you, this is the first version I heard, and this is the one I always go to if I want to listen to this song. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's move on to Angel of Harlem. Brassy. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but it is. <laughs> I mean, it is brassy. It is brassy, and it's not something that you expect to hear in a U2 song, is brass. No, not at all. But it's very welcome. Yeah, like, so I have, like, a weird kind of relationship with this song 
there are times that I really like it and there are times that I don't. And I'm currently in one of my favourable periods towards it. It does have a soul to it. It has a soul inflection to it that I enjoy. I think that's somewhat kind, the soul inflection. I know what you mean. I think that's entirely provided by the pawns, I've got to say. Yeah. So the song's about Billie Holiday, so it references Lady Sings the Blues, obviously. I quite like it. Yeah, the, it does have a, a jazzy, bluesy feel to it. It's very much an Irish rock and roll band's take on a blues jazz song. Oh, God, yeah. The version, so you see this being played in the film. So it was recorded at the Legendary Sun Studios in Memphis, which is where Elvis and Johnny Cash did their early recordings. So I like Angela Harlem, okay? Yeah, I, I completely understand what you mean about going back and forth on it. I've always liked it. But it's never been one of my favourites of you two, is what I'll say. Mm-hmm. One thing I do want to say, and we mentioned right at the start about how disjointed the film is. To a large extent, you can level the same criticism at the album. So the reason you chose this clash was because it's a concert soundtrack. And the reason they started making the film was for it to be a road movie Now, the film, to a much greater extent, is. There are several performances of songs in the film that I'd love to be included on the album, not least of all the live version of Exit that's in the film. Oh, my God. I've I've tried to search that down so many times, Mm -hmm. and it's on, like, a... If you were subscribed to YouTube magazine, like, in (laughs) 2001, like, there's there's a CD that you got, and... Like, I've not been able to get a hold of that version. I mean, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so there's that. So, I want to speak about the fact because we're about to embark on a run of five new songs in a row on this concert album. And I just want to read a quote from Adam Clayton on that. The idea was to record these songs as vignettes to break up the live footage in various places along the tour. We didn't know the album was going to turn into a double album at that point. It was really just a way of setting up things for the film. Well, okay, that was your intention originally, but that is absolutely not what's transpired on the finished product. And I'd love to know at what point the decision was taken to... This is a new album with some live tracks on it. It is not a double album. It's a new... There's nine new songs on this compared to six live songs on this and two little vignettes from other artists. That's not a double album. That's a new album. Yeah, it is. Maybe at the time he gave that quote, he was thinking about his uh, production values on Naomi Campbell's solo album. Nice. I just wanted, <laughs> to be honest, I was fine. I was trying to think of some way to shoehorn that in because obviously we talked about Naomi Campbell exactly. earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah, Angel Harlem. I like it. Okay, let's move on to Love Rescue Me. Yeah, co-written by Bono and Bob Dylan. It's not bad. No, it's not bad at all. So so Bob Dylan also provides backing vocals. Apparently it was originally demoed with Dylan providing the lead vocal. But then they realised that Dylan can't actually sing? Well, I'll come on to that in a minute. <laughs> Apparently he asked for it to be changed due to his commitments with the Travelling Wilburys. I'm not quite sure how that makes sense, but anyway. To quote Bono on the process of writing the song... I wrote a couple of verses, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And then I thought, I've got Bob Dylan's number. Why don't I just give him a call? 
He invited me to visit him. I was really happy to be there hanging out with my hero. So we finished it. He just sings fantastic stuff off the top of his head. I learned a lot from Bob Dylan just by writing with him. Yeah, so you jokingly said because I realised Bob Dylan can't sing. I think his backing vocal sounds great on this, and I think it complements Bono's lead vocal really, really well. Yeah. I do not think it would work the other way around at all. No. (laughs) It depends how you feel about Dylan's vocals anyway. I like Dylan's vocals. I think something like Times They Are A-Changing needs Bob Dylan's vocal. Yes. I I like Dylan's vocals. However, we can both agree that by this point where he's found God, the vocals are starting to tail off a wee touch. Yeah, very much so. I mean, in terms of this song itself, is it's a beautiful, gentle, country-infused ballad initially. Yeah. And then it gro- like evolves into this like sort of really soulful ending. It like Some great beautiful brass. song. Oh, lovely brass. Uh, and as you know, I'm a bastard for brass. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a fucking belter. I think it's a great song. It's you know, I've always loved this. I'm really glad you said that, because this is not often cited by people as being one of their favourite tracks on the album. It is one of mine mm-hmm. uh, for everything that you've just said. It's got a really melancholic lament. Well, it's got Dylan all over it is what it's got. You know, you've got that opening subtle, gentle guitar riff. Then that smooth little harmonica bit comes in. The bass line's great in this. It's simple. Yeah, yeah. But God, Adam Clayton, he just he just holds it all the way through. I think the way it develops, you start off with, as I say, that it, it sounds country-infused. It's really simple. But then you have the disparate elements that sort of come in. And then it becomes it becomes something completely different from what from where you started. Yeah, it does. But with that. I love the way it, once you've had the bombast of the final chorus, it just gently fades out yeah. as you were. It's the perfect coda to the song. Yeah, it, it's a really impressive piece of work. It's lovely stuff. I've always had a very soft spot for Love Rescue Me. So, mm, As I have the next song. Yeah, it's one song off this album that did all right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. When Love Comes to Town, with quite a lot, (laughs) B.B. King. Yeah. So another one recorded at Sun Studios. So yeah, it did quite... So it was a single, as you said, it got to number one in Ireland, number six in the UK, only number 68 on the Billboard Hot 100, which is a surprise. Mm. So what did Bono and the Edge say about it? So Edge, firstly... Bono came up with When Loves Comes to Town. He thought it was too traditional for us. We'd been to see B.B. King a few weeks before, and after the show, B.B. said, I'd love it if you guys would write me a song. So the idea came for us to cut a tune with B.B. King. Bono then said, There was a deeply humbling moment as I watched the great man read the lyrics. He said to me, You're kind of young to write such heavy lyrics. I understand what B.B. King said about about the lyrics. They are really deep. There's very, very spiritual lyrics here. Mm-hmm. The verse that B.B. King sings, the one about the betrayal of Christ, is really, really evocative. So you two have never really shied away from the fact that they are, well, certainly the, the majority of members of the band are Christians. Mm-hmm. 
And Bono refers to the Joshua Tree as a gospel album, as a Christian rock album, you know. I, I get that, yeah. And, you know, the, there's definitely something to that. So they've never really hidden the fact that they have a belief, and mm-hmm. this song very much plays into that. 100%. In terms of the music, well, B.B. King's great. I, I think he and Bono sound great with the vocals. Just, just his vocal performance has this. He, he's bringing so much depth that he that his blues voice brings. I agree, I, I, and so there's there's a great juxtaposition, if you like, between his bluesy growl and Bono's voice, and Bono's belting this out at a hell of a range. He's, he's trying to compete, like, well, he's competing with BB King, and like it works. Because his vocal style doesn't really compete. Yes, it's exactly. Different. Exactly. Now, whether that was his intention or not, we don't know. But the end result, I, I agree, it does work. I would say exactly the same about the guitar work as well. And, and Edge does not try to compete. Because why would you? Well, exactly. Edge plays some very Edge guitar parts, and BB King just fucking wanders all over it. And wow. Yeah. The, the, man, the man's all right on a guitar. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, we had the pleasure of, of seeing him at Glasgow, didn't we? Indeed we did, and we both had a lovely time. We did indeed. So, that yeah, they copped a lot of flack in the aftermath of this album for effectively appropriating American music. Much of it is deserved. Mm-hmm. Come back to me in a minute on that. But this is a great blues track, because it's got a great blues man playing on it. You know, but they wrote the song. It's a classic 12-bar blues. Definitely. Like, you know, yeah. It's B.B. King. You're really going to have to fuck up big style <laughs> to make this shit. Yeah. Um, everyone, Everyone's performing really well, so it's a belter. Um, well done. Well done indeed. So uh, we then move on to the next song on the album, which is Heartland. Mm. What do you think? I don't like it. Never have. <laughs> Brilliant. Because, right, like the bass opening, I've always disliked this song. Not sure what what is about it, just never grabs me. (laughs) Oh my God. I've never really liked this song. I can't really put my finger on exactly why, but it's just so clearly album filler. (laughs) It's somehow emotionless. Yeah, it's got no, it's got nothing to it. On, On an album where... We And we've just been talking about how deep a lot of the lyrics that Bono writes are. This has got nothing, as you said. You can see here where they're playing at that grand American vista. So apparently, as I mentioned earlier, after the tour had finished, they moved to LA to finish the album. And at one point during that period, Bono and Adam Clayton decided to get away from it all. So, again, from the book, Adam Clayton says, At some point, Bono and I rented a Jeep Cherokee and headed off from L.A. to New Orleans. Bono said, Heartland came out of that trip. The song is full of little bits of travelogue from my journal. And you can tell it's about a road trip in the lyrics. The line 66, the highway speaks, it's cringeworthy. Yeah, it properly grates. There are songs on this album that have great pathos, great insight into the human condition. And then there are things like that that are too much on the nose and it feels lazy more than anything else. 
Well, as I said, it's it's clearly album filler. Yeah. And on an album of 72 minutes in length, it does not need much padding, guys. No. <laughs> yeah, it's a swing and a miss for me, this one. Yeah, I, I agree. So, we then go on to God Part 2. Yeah, we do. Described as a sequel to uh, the John Lennon song, God. Well, yeah, so there's a story behind that. I'll read Bono in his own words. At one point, I chickened out of the retro nature of songwriting on Rattle and Ham. I'd been reading Albert Goldman's book on John Lennon, and it so offended me. The book was completely unnecessary to me. I thought, he can't apply, so I'm going to. And that became God Part 2, in homage to Lennon's beautiful song, God. The whole song came out of a moment where I was worried about what we were doing. The song doesn't actually belong on Rattle and Hum. It's really the first song on Acting Baby. I'd come to the end of nostalgia. That's the clue. And there's a lyric in there, you glorify the past when the future dries up, which absolutely gets to the heart of that last bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, there's a direct reference to Albert Goldman in there. Don't believe in Goldman, his type like a curse. Instant karma's going to get him if I don't get him first. A fucking great lyric and another reference, obviously, to a, to mm-hmm. a very famous and a brilliant John Lennon song. I am quite a fan of this song. Yeah, it's not bad. It's fucking brilliant. I mean, it starts with a fucking proper moody bass. Oh, God, it does, yeah. It's a great package, like... It, the whole song has a proper moody, nihilistic, fuck you sound to it. The, the lyrics are absolutely caustic. Yeah. I understand what Bono's saying when he says it doesn't belong on Rattle and Home, that it's sort of the first song on Acting Baby, because thematically it doesn't fit, it certainly doesn't fit with what we've just talked about on Heartland, and that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, th- this was the start of them not taking themselves so seriously. Well, it I, I suppose it's the start of their end of Americana period. So, yeah, I can understand where he's coming from. And, yeah, thematically, it does fit better with what comes next as opposed to what's on the album. Particularly when you think about the larger-than-life characters that he created on the Zoo TV tour. The fly, the ego, Mr. McFisto, the devil, the mirrorball man, the glitz, the glamour, the Hollywood trash. It was playing with that seedy side of Americana. The, 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 so they'd gone past the romanticism of it and they were into the disgust, mm-hmm. you know. Might have got that from um, certain British artists who sort of. Came I was to hoping we were going to go 70s. one. I was hoping we were going to go one <laughs> clash without you Didn't fucking say his bringing name. up. Bro. Didn't say his name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, basically, we can say God Part Two is fucking boss. It's good. So we move on to the Star Spangled Banner, which is basically. The Hendrix version. It's Hendrix at Woodstock. It, the, yeah. the, it was played at the start of Bullet the Blue Sky in the live shows. And that makes sense when you understand what Bullet the Blue Sky is about. Yeah, which Bono very much explains. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, I suggest we move on to Bullet the Blue Sky. I love Bullet the Blue Sky. I think it's a fucking boss song. What I will say, I think it's brilliantly moody. That is a great live version. And I really like it, but I like the original more. 
disagree. This is my favourite version. Oh, fair enough. So, yes, it is always a highlight of their live performances when they play Bullet the Blue Sky. So the song itself was written as a scathing attack on America and of the American foreign policy in Central America during the war on drugs, Nicaragua, El Salvador in particular. And again, I think that's why the Hendrix intro works so well. The reason this is my favourite version of the song is it is played with such energy. It's got a furious righteousness about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. It's played with such a righteous fury. (laughs) Oh my God. That's fucking outrageous. That wasn't even in my notes. I just like <laughs> just came up with that. Okay, now. But you're right. You're absolutely right. Everyone is so on point. It's tight. The bass line is fucking massive, which has always bothered me about the version on the Joshua Tree. The bass should be so much more prominent in that mix. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right there. Here it is. And yeah, okay, you've got a bit more Bono monologuing. <laughs> but that's in the original anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love Bullet the Blue Sky. Great song. Yeah, it's a brilliant version. It's done really well. It's not my favourite version. Like, I do prefer the album version. So, and I'm not trying to trip you up here. I'm just genuinely interested to, because I've tried to explain why I prefer this version. Why do you prefer the, is it because you heard it first? Possibly. It, it may well be that I heard it first. I think that the, the version on the Joshua Tree may, the guitars are a bit more jagged. Yeah, I can I can understand what you mean there. Like, not that they are like sort of smoothed off and fucking Hank Marvin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now that is a cover version I need to hear. <laughs> but they, the version on the Joshua Tree, they are much more uncomfortable and sit well with the with thematic nature of the song. That's why I think I prefer it. Okay, I can I can understand that. I don't I don't agree. Well, it's not a question of agree, is it? It's about personal preference. Mm-hmm. I understand where you're coming from. I, I have a different reason for why this is my preferred version, but I think we are both big fans of the song. Yeah, it's it's a great song. So we then move on to the last song of the album, All I Want Is You. Epic. Oh, God, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it is gorgeous. The string arrangement is just oh. lush. I mean, I I wrote down in my notes, it's classically U2. Oh, that's interesting. Because uh, I know what you mean. Uh, certainly the guitar part is classic mm-hmm. edge. But strings, or certainly an orchestral arrangement like this in a U2 song is not what I would call classic U2, actually. I, would, I can't think of another U2 song that I would liken to All I Want Is You. No, I see what you mean, but like the the orchestral arrangement is unique to it, but the overall package is it couldn't be any other band. Yes, I think it's beautiful. Like lyrically, the rhythm section is really it's really well balanced. They don't overwhelm the song, but they're there, and you can feel them, and you know that they're there, and it they drive the song along, but not in a way that overwhelms it and gives it a lightness god it, i think it's gorgeous yes i agree there's a guitar solo from edge towards the end which is now that is classic edge guitar playing and it's another one to go back to that bill bailey joke if you had a 
fail if Edge's guitar <laughs> pedals stop working, then it would sound shit because it is kind of all about the delay and the effect. But mm-hmm. you would say that about any guitarist. You fucking listen to Hendrix if his fucking big muff packs in, then it's not going to sound anything like the same. So you know, it's an easy joke to make, but. What Edge does with his guitar playing and, and on this song in particular is he makes something so simple sound so massive because that guitar solo, it's fucking huge. It, it is the crescendo of the song. Straight after Bono's been belting out the All I Want Is You, that's where you get that guitar solo coming. And oh my God, it's like you've, everything's turned up. It's a sensory overload. It's just wow. Look, I love that Bill Bailey joke. However, he is able to make it because uh, The Edge has managed to make his guitar sound iconic. I am not a guitarist. You are. So I have no no real thing that I can say about his technical proficiency. But what I can say is that I fucking know a, an Edge guitar solo. Yeah. And I there are many guitarists that, of bands that I really like whose solos I couldn't recognize, mm-hmm. but I know fucking is. Do you know what? He has made his stamp, and so everyone else can go fuck themselves. Well, let's go back. must be about 10 years or so ago now. And you turned me on to this, and I'm glad you did, because it's fucking amazing. You don't get to be in a three-way interview thing with fucking Jimmy Page and Jack White if you're a chancer that's just come off the street. So... Anyone who hasn't seen it, the, I know exactly what Tim's referring to, which I did tell him about, is there's a documentary which is, I think it's called Turn It Up Loud or yeah. something like that, with Jack White, Jimmy Page and The Edge, and it's great. Like, if you are a music nerd, and presumably you are because you're listening <laughs> to this, it's worthwhile watching. It is worthwhile watching, but you know what I mean? It's like you you can't yes. be in that company if you're a busker. Noel Gallagher's not being invited to that party. And that's all she wrote on that. So, yeah. yeah. I'm really glad you talked about the lyrics because, again, there's some great imagery. This is a mm-hmm. song... I think this is one of the best love songs I've ever heard because it perfectly captures that feeling of being utterly devoted to someone else. It's pining. That person is like your oxygen. Exactly. Even though you know they can't give you everything they're going to promise, that they will let you down at some point. You don't care. All the promises we break from the cradle to the grave when all I want is you. It's mm-hmm. That line in the chorus is everything. And when he, belt, when he belts it out as well, it is screaming to the moon that this person is everything to you. Absolutely right. Yeah, great stuff. Love it. Yeah, it's it, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Okay, we have reached the end of Rattlin' Home. We have indeed. Should I go into uh, the reviews before we do Legacy? Yes, please. Okay, it's a proper, like, it properly divided people. So some reviewers really didn't like it. So John Pirellas of the New York Times called it a mess, exuded sincere egomania, and said the band's self-importance got in the way of their ambition for the album. Melody Maker said that Rattle and Hum lacks cohesion and is musically, stylistically confused. And he also criticised Bono's reverential nods to the great white heroes of rock, you know, there's there's some points there. Um, Tom Carson from the Village Voice called it an awful record. I don't think that's right. Uh, by almost any 
of rock and roll fan standards and said the group's failure did not sound attributable to pretensions so as to monumental nothingism. Clearly um, taking the lead from fellow Village Voice critic. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. However, other people were much more positive of it. So, uh, writing the Rolling Stone, Anthony DeCurtis said the record succeeded at capping Newsy's rise to stardom on a raucous celebratory note, finding it to be most enjoyable when the band relaxes and allows itself to stretch without self-consciously reaching for the stars. J.D. Constantine of the Baltimore Sun said the album's songs draw upon every musical strength you two have developed over the years and the sheer muscular physicality of its sound. So, yeah, it's it's very much a mixed bag. Some people really went for it and some people very much went again it. I think some of those reviewers suffered from Be Here Now syndrome and mm-hmm. I am not prejudging what I'm going to score Rattle and Home as okay. But I think some of those glowing reviews were, well, they just released the Joshua Tree and that sold 25 million copies. So, of course, we're going to give this massive scores. It's you too. Why wouldn't we? They're the biggest band in the world. I also think that some of those reviews suffered from uh, the sort of gag reflex to you too that people must have been feeling about that time. I'll fuck off these guys again. Just, I've had enough of you. So, interestingly, the NME very much speaks to that. Mm-hmm. So, Stuart Bailey of The Enemy gave it an 8 out of 10 review. However, con- very much contentiously, his review replaced a much more negative 4 out of 10 review by Mark Sinker, oh. in which he described it as the worst album by a major band in years. It was pulled by the editor of the time, Alan Lewis, as he feared that criticism of YouTube would affect the magazine's circulation, and Sinker resigned in protest. Wow. I mean, I would disagree with the extreme nature of his review, but at the he's same... right to resign. Well, exactly. So anyway, that's very, very interesting. Uh, so yes, you've mentioned someone from the Village Voice speaking in somewhat uh, elongated <laughs> terms. Shall we get to Nobby? With due um, annoyance, yes. Let's let's get to him. I mean, it's been a long show, it's a long album, and it's a long review. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. Robert Criscal, writing for The Village Voice. Pretentious, uh, naturellement, mais that ain't all. Over the years, they've melded... I know, we've not started well with the French, which, anyway... (laughs) Over the years, they've melded Americana into their old world riffs, and while Bono's Play the Blues Edge overstates this accomplishment, their groove is some kind of rock and roll wrinkle. This partly live double LP is looser and faster than anything they've recorded since the first live mini LP, with the remakes of Pride, In the Name of Love, and Silver and Gold, and Still Have a Farm, what I'm looking for, improved by both practice and negligence. I don't know what he means by that negligence. A good half of the new stuff could knock over unsuspecting sceptics. The B.B. Hendrix Dylan cameos are surprising and generous. And as a token of self-knowledge, Bono concludes a lecture on South Africa with a magisterially sarcastic, I don't mean to bug you. Yet, as usual, things don't get any better when you decide to find out exactly what he's waxing so meaningful about. Damn. I hate it when I agree with him. And he still takes fucking ages to make his point, though. Yeah. Uh, once he gets there, he does kind of make a point, but he's, in, he's still insufferable whilst he gets that. <laughs> exactly. 
Oh, God, Kev, we've been here for fucking ages. Let's talk about Legacy. Okay, so uh, I suppose the legacy of this album is that it very much forced them down the route that they went to on their next album. I've got a couple of quotes. So The Edge, Rattling Hum was conceived as a scrapbook, a mentor of the time spent in America on the Joshua Tree tour. Change when the movie, which was initially conceived of as a low-budget film, suddenly became a big Hollywood affair. That put a different emphasis on the album, which suffered from the huge promotion and publicity, and people reacted against it. Mm -hmm. So Paul McGuinness said, I wasn't prepared for the difference in the size of the movie campaign and the average record campaign, how all across America for a couple of weeks you couldn't turn on your TV without getting you two in your face. That's not the way records are marketed. It's much more subtle. And I think a lot of the band's old fans found it distasteful. The aftermath, I think, quite honestly, was that no one wanted to hear about U2 for a while. I mean, fucking hell, fast forward 20 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Didn't Didn't learn from the iPod fucking thing. Well, not just the fucking iPod thing. In 2014, as I've said before, they launched a malware attack on every single Apple user by forcing their album onto them. If that's not distasteful, I've no idea what it is. Oh, my God. Well, I I was just thinking of, like, the Vertigo, where you couldn't avoid Mm -hmm. them. Like, so they were on the BBC, like, as a special thing. Like, you had the YouTube fucking iPod special iPod like they were everywhere like they had they did not fucking learn Uh, well and as I have mentioned before (laughs) on Album Clash Blackberry loves you too I was about to say Blackberry (laughs) (laughs) alright there's a couple of things I want to talk about about the film in particular if I may Um, because this is a film season and we are talking about concert films right so Paul McGuinness again I think something went wrong in the post-production of the film where it became a bit too self-reverent The point of view of the filmmaker disappeared and every shot was kind of approved by the band. Larry, whose quotes throughout this have been fucking brilliant, by the way. My respect for Larry Mullen Jr. has gone up massively. Larry said, that movie was made by committee, the Politburo, which was us as the band. In fairness to Phil Jonu, the life stuff was extremely well done. A lot of the incidental moments were more difficult. We were trying very hard not to be exposed. We didn't know what we wanted. And lastly, Bono, Again, in a rare moment of self-awareness, I think it was a moment when hubris was the next logical step in our development and we walked right into a sucker punch. Okay, now Bono talk about hubris. <laughs> exactly. So, this album at the time was the fastest selling album ever in the UK, selling 360,000 copies in the first week, beating a record set by the Joshua Tree the year before, a record that Rattle and Hum held until Be Here Now was released in 1997. So, yeah, I mean, it's the weird thing about it is that the album was a massive commercial success. The film itself was not. Well, no, so what they've talked about is that so they, they, their initial view was, we'll fund it ourselves. It'll be a small thing, limited release. We'll get all the fans out and, you know, it'll be a underground cult thing. It's shot in black and white. It's nice and low budget. And yeah, the fans love it. No one else needs to be troubled by it. They got themselves into the hole with the funding, had to engage Paramount. Paramount said, how are we going to make our money back? I know what we're going to do. We're going to go fucking big with this and ram it down everyone's throats. It opened in 1,500 theatres across the States. And apparently it had a, didn't even have a massive opening weekend. It had a massive opening night where 
all the U2 fans went to see it, and then it disappeared because the rest, the, the rest of the public were like, "Oh, fuck off!" No one get, no one gave a shit, or yeah. were just fed up of hearing from them. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, as you said, the real legacy of Rattle and Home is that it forced U2 into a period of, of self-reflection. So the last night of what became a Love Town tour, New Year's Eve 1989 in Dublin, Bono addressed the crowd at the end of the set where they were performing Love Rescue Me. He said, this is the end of something for U2. We have to go away and dream it all up again. So, they went away. They stopped taking themselves so fucking seriously. They took a big slice of Bowie influence. Oh, yeah. And they came back in 1991 with Acton Baby, which I'm not going to talk about now because we will definitely be doing it at some point on Album Clash. Well, yeah, and without the hubris of Rattle and Hum, that you don't get Acton Baby, you don't get the reinvention. Yeah. And that's, that's its true legacy, really. 100% agree. I have nothing further to add because you've summed it up perfectly. No, so um, let's move on to best song, worst song. All right. Well, the worst song is obviously all on the Watchtower. It is dreadful. It is offensively inoffensive. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the best song is a toughie. Part of me wants to pick one of the live tracks because the reason you chose this was as a concert album. And there are some great live performances on here. I like Silver and Gold. I think Pride in the Name of Love is a great live version. For me, the definitive version of that song. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. Oh my God. Wow. If you go to the original songs, Love Rescue Me is great. When Love Comes to Town is great. Desire is a tour de force. It's a great pop song. But I'm going to go with All I Want Is You. It's spellbinding. How about you? So I think I think you've made an excellent choice for your best song. Worst song, you're right. It's all along the Watchtower. Although it could be Helter Skelter quite easily. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to Van Diemen's Land. I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You've highlighted Prize. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You know, there's there's so much. There are loads of really good things on here. And I, I was sort of in between what I was going. So I was tempted to go with All I Want Is You, but I'm not going there. I'm going to go with Love Rescue Me. I think it's a fucking belter. I think everyone is on point. It's great. Okay, good stuff. Well, it's probably time we got down to scoring, Kev. We have been here for a while, so... We have. uh, Your pick, which means, as is our custom, you lead us off and bring us home. So, I will open with my scoring for uh, Stop Making Sense. So... I think it's a phenomenal album. I'm not too keen on Take Me to the River. I think it, what I will accept is that I'd never really been that keen on the Talking Heads version of it. But everything else is fucking great. There's there's so much going on and there's there's so much musical content, lyrical content, performative content. Like there's so much going on. I think it's a fucking great album and like if you just want an introduction to how great talking heads actually are and how great david byrne is as a performer Mm -hmm. then this is a great primer so i'm gonna come down with an eight out of ten i think it's fucking great okay so i'd never heard stop making sense before researching this clash as i mentioned last week so this is a 
Well, not an entirely new discovery because I was familiar with quite a few of the songs. But I'd never heard the album and, and I'd never seen the film. And I'm glad that I now have done both of those things. Much of what you've said, I echo. Uh, I would also say that not only does it highlight David Byrne's prowess as a performer, but it showcases the band and how close and tight they were as a band. Mm. We mentioned the rhythm section last week in particular, but, but everyone throughout that performance is A, having a brilliant time, and that comes through, but B, just completely on it. I mean, it sounds like so much fun to be there. Yeah, exactly. It, it does. I want more than nine tracks. And, well, pulling back the curtain again, the only version I could get hold of to listen to was the special edition full 16 tracks, as you see on the film. I much prefer that set list because it, it actually tells the story of the concert much better than what's on the album because what's on the album flits between. So I have to measure this against the two live albums we've done previously. We've done three live albums, actually. But the, the live clash we've done previously, which was Johnny Cash against Aretha Franklin. We gave both of those albums 18 out of 20. We scored them 9999. If this was the full 16 track, then I'd be giving this 9 out of 10. At 9 tracks, I'm left wanting more. And so I agree with your score. I think it is brilliant, but it could be near perfect. So I'm going to go 8 out of 10 as well. That gives Stop Making Sense 16 out of 20. Okay. So, rattling home. All right. I mentioned earlier that this isn't a concert album. It's not a live album. Under a Blood Red Sky is a live album, and it's a brilliant live album. And most of the live tracks on this album are brilliant. But there's nine new songs, so it's a new album. So it fails in its objective, and I'm taking that into consideration. This album doesn't know what it wants to be. The film doesn't know what it wants to be. That's its problem. That's why it had such mixed reviews. People didn't really know what to review it as, I think. And that disjointed, almost schizophrenic nature comes to the fore when you get halfway through the album and then you've got five new songs in a row. And four of them are really good, don't get me wrong, but is this a live album or what? Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. That said, some of my favourite U2 songs are on this album. And there's only one of the new songs that I don't like. So it is a million miles away from the disaster that some of those reviews you read out made out to be. I'm going 7 out of 10, and I'd love to give it more. But as an album, we talked about track ordering as well. Songs on this album are brilliant. The album itself is a bit of a mess, and so I can't score it higher than a 7. And as much as I'd love to give it more, I can't. 7 out of 10. What about you? Okay, you've taken a lot of the um, a lot of what I wanted to say. There are some phenomenal moments in it. Some of the new songs, so All I Want Is You, God Part Two, Love Rescue Me. You know, there's there's some absolute belters in there. There's some belting live tracks, but it's a proper melange. <laughs> like it doesn't work as an album as such. It's more a collection of disparate elements. And, you know, they're a really great band. So those disparate, different elements work 
but as an album it doesn't work and as we said there's ordering issues there's there's issues with this album so but there's incredible high points in it so i think that you're right where you've come down so i will also come down with a seven out of ten i think it's it could be so much better but it doesn't know what it wants to be it's neither live it's neither a new album it's not a covers album it's Mm -hmm. a bit of everything thrown in together you don't know what it is but the beauty of this album is what it forced the band to go on and do yes A, a really good point there we go then it's a fairly clear victory for talking heads for Stop Making Sense for the album and for the film, which set the template, as we said last week, for concert films. So, Better album, better film. Exactly. We have arrived at the right choice. Mm-hmm. 16 beats 14. Congratulations, David Byrne, Tina Weymouth, Chris France, Jerry Harrison. You have won this week's Album Clash. I hope that it brings you back together as a group, or at least as a group of friends, if not a, as not as a, as a band. <laughs> Go and have a cup of tea together. Exactly. Maybe have a custard cream or a bourbon. Right, where are we going next? We still doing some films? Yeah, we're, we're banging to the film season, yeah. so it's up to you. All right, so it would be churlish of us to do a film season and not go through some actual film scores. Uh, so that's what we're going to do next time out. Different for us, I know, but I want to do some film scores. So there you go. And... I'm going to pick the scores from two barely famous films, both composed by Italian composers. And so at least one of those, Kev already knows what it's going to be. And we've talked about him quite a few times over the past few weeks anyway. Yes, next week, Kev, I am going to take us through Ennio Morricone's score to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Fucking boss. (laughs) And the following week, I would like you to take us through Nino Rota's score to a film which is 50 years old this year, The Godfather. Boss. Lovely stuff. Thought you'd enjoy those two. Yeah, I'm banging to both of those choices. Uh, So that's next time. Before then, however, Kev, could you please tell people how they can keep in touch with us? So you may have access to Twitter and whilst there you could uh, check out, well, you can't check out Graham Linehan anymore because he's banned off Twitter, but you can (laughs) check out captions of him bitching about the fact that he has lost his family due to him being a massive transphobe. No, 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 no. Let's be clear. Firstly, he's not bitching, he's crying. Uh, And he's saying that, oh, it's because these people attacked me that I lost my family. They took my family from me. No, that's not the case. Nothing to do with his own behaviour. Or nothing to do with his wife having any agency in that matter. Exactly. So, Twitter, not a great place. (laughs) But if you want to check out our um, quality content, then you can go to At Clash Album on Twitter. If you like carefully curated quality content, then you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you want to sign us up for some kind of Ponzi scheme, then uh, sign us up at Please don't. albumclash <laughs> at gmail.com. Great. As ever, guys, thank you very much for listening. Get in touch. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. If you are Graham Linehan, then uh, let us know how Fuck you'll be off. fucking off. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, leave your ratings, leave your reviews. Tell us what you want us to cover on Album Clash. Just a reminder, so next week I'm going to be going through the soundtrack to The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And in a couple of weeks' time, Kev? I will be doing the Godfather soundtrack. Great stuff. Cannot wait. Uh, Until then, however, I have been Tim. And I have been an Arthur Matthews Ultra, Kev. Take care, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.